Welcome, 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 welcome to Find the Outside the Podcast. We're back. You're back. We're all together. It's so nice to see you again. (laughs) Anyway, I'll tell you, it's been a veritable saga of technical travesty. Hey, Technical Travesty Tuesday. I know. Check out that alliteration today. But we're actually here now, you know, ins and outs, things crashing, bits of tech not working. But we're here. We think we're here. We're here. We got, you know, if you're listening to us, this has happened. Against all the odds, insurmountable odds, sometimes it felt like we're now here and with you and excited to do this little reflection pod where we get to look back on the two pods we have, the kind of in the field section of the pod of kind of this season where we spoke to some fantastic friends and colleagues. So, um, you know, Tuesday said she had some brilliant insights to kick us off. So <laughs> everybody just like, you know, hold on to your seat, hold your breath because it's about to happen. Okay. To be fair, Tuesday never said she had brilliant insights. And now <laughs> I'm talking in the third person, which is also weird. Huh. Zlatan Ibrahimovic does that. He's a soccer player. And he's always like, Zlatan played very well, you know, and he's brilliant, you know. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he can get away with it because he's so good. Yeah, I mean, he was ridiculously good. When he got signed by a US team, he actually released a pad, a, a huge one-page ad in the paper, and it just said, you're welcome, Slatan." when they signed him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Arrogant much? I don't think so. I mean, and yet I love it. Right? He's a total character. The guy, you know, he makes me laugh. He played for a year for Man United and he was brilliant. And, you know, he comes from a really, really tough background in Malmo, Sweden. He grew up with an alcoholic dad. Like He's like against all the odds, just like us today, against all the odds, he has surmounted those obstacles and become this world-class, world-renowned footballer, you know. And, of course, you know, to survive all of those things in his childhood, he had to create a personality that could survive that stuff, you know. That's exactly right. I love that you compared it to our technical issues today, but I'm going to go and say <laughs> that his alcoholic dad in Malmo, Sweden and poverty is a lot like my pop filter not working. But I, what I do like really appreciate was I think that that is true, especially for very early rappers. Mm. Like there was a whole like movement in rap where like they, they like talked about how great they were. Right. And it was like this amazing, beautiful, like defiance. Here I am. I think that it's still, I mean, I, I don't listen to rap music. So I'm like, I can't like really speak on the current, the, the current stat status of rap. But I feel like a lot of what people hate about it is it's black men, mostly black men, sometimes it's black women, which is awesome, or other races, like talking about how, like, there is some sense of like, yes, I'm here and I'm awesome. And I think that that is like inherently threatening. But it's really amazing. And it is, like you said, it is what has to happen to get to that point, to get to that kind of stage. You have to believe in yourself in a way that no one else does, right? And maybe it's a maybe it's a cover for not believing in yourself, but the upfront is like some real braggadocio kind of like, there. you have to have a drive that says, I can do this in a way that I, you know, I think is pretty remarkable. Yeah, there's a perseverance to it. Mm-hmm. You know, not to talk about soccer too much, but Eric Ten Hag is this new manager of Manchester United and he's he's been a, he's transformed the team. It's very very exciting. Mm. But he's very deliberately said in his in his uh kind of like transfer where he goes out and finds new players, he's very deliberately looked for 
players who've had to like persevere to succeed, who come from backgrounds where they've had to overcome adversity because he believes those players are better squad players Ah. and they've got the kind of determination and perseverance that it takes to compete at the highest levels in soccer. You know, that's great. And And he's just brought in this fantastic right winger from Brazil called Anthony. And, and so it's just a really interesting take on it. And of course, this is the last thing I'll say about soccer for the next five seconds. Sure. Is that is, uh, of course, in Nova Scotia, you've got an entire sports system that's pay to play, mm-hmm. you know? And so you, so whether it's soccer or any other sport, not only is that unethical and morally unacceptable mm-hmm. that people don't get access to competitive sport unless they've got money, there's a huge talent pool. Right, of course. There is a huge talent pool that you're not getting access to in terms of generating local, regional, national level right. bodies of comp- competitive sports people. So I just think it's a, the whole thing's super interesting, isn't it? This, you know, and these attitudes we have to develop to survive, our survival personalities. Right. Where we come through adversity that can carry us remarkable places, right? Right. And are probably, you know, as you talked about, what was his name? Zlatan? Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Our clients in uh, our clients in Malmo would know all about him. Like Yoel in Malmo, who we worked with, would... He's all about, you know, he knows all about him. They kind of love him and hate him a little, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking like, that's like what gets you on the field, but I bet it's not awesome off the field. You know what I mean? Like, I bet that might be kind of hard to work with off the field, but it's true. Also, last thing about soccer is the only thing I know. Ted Lasso comes out really soon, like less than a month from now. A series three? A series three, March 15th. That's right. No. Oh, that's fun. I love that mm-hmm. show. Me I love too. watching that show with Katie. I love watching that show with my wife. She enjoys it, you know, and she and she gets references I don't get. Like there's some references in there that are like targeted at North American culture uh-huh. and there are references that are targeted at British culture. And I love it. We both, it's what, you know, very rare to me and me and Katie, my wife, watch sporting shows together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love it. I love being able to sit down with Kate and watch that one. And it's funny and kind. And yes. It's all the, it's all the stuff, you, it's all the stuff you want in when the news is, can be so dark, isn't it? That's right. So that's coming out. But we should probably talk about, I mean, look, this is our Reflections podcast. So we get to reflect on whatever we want, Yeah. by the way. That's right. So, you know, the focus of this podcast, or not even the focus, how about say the jumping off point of this podcast mm-hmm. is to reflect on the interviews we had recently with Natalie Williams for the Wellbeing Being Blueprint and Alex Schneider from, it's Columbia University. It's a lab. It's a justice lab. I can't remember the exact, and then uh, Juanita Robinson and Tennyson Wolf from QT Wisdom. And so interestingly enough, like this, I, this was not the idea when we booked those two sets of guests, but just to name like the through thread, it is a black woman and a white man in both particular interview sets. And you and I, obviously, black woman, white man. And so I'm curious because I think there was a, you had mentioned before we started, there was a spectrum of analysis in these interviews. And I would say in some ways we fall right in the middle, right? I would say Natalie and Alex, like their analysis around issues of equity is like front and center, how they lead their work, right? And I would say, you know, obviously we say systems change and equity, right? So like we're holding both. And then I would say Juanita and Tennyson, well, I don't doubt that they have analysis and it came out through how they how they teach and what they're thinking about. It is not at all front and center in what they do, although it's present. And so just kind of noticing these cross-racial, cross-gender teams, all of whom have a care 
toward racial justice, obviously, but the way we hold what we ascend and what we front is actually quite different. Did you notice that? Yeah. And I wonder if we're working with different audiences. I wonder if Mm. these are about like, I wonder if these are, when you talk about it that way, it's like, what's the pathway to the well? You you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And like, and, and many of us, you know, we're, we're providing gateways maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. what was it? Juanita Brown used to talk about years ago, she was one of the founders of the world cafe. Right. And then in the global world cafe network folks, and you could check, check their stuff out. I mean, it's amazing. It's really, it's a great methodology, but underneath the methodology is a very sophisticated understanding of how to kind of build participatory process. So don't, I mean, the method's great, but, but some of their writing and thinking that create that kind of is underneath the method is I think quite, quite, quite compelling. But she always, she used to talk about the central garden, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, this idea, this idea that, you know, all of these methodologies and approaches um, are just a, a, a really gateways into how we could be living the future now, how could we, how we could be giving people direct experiences, referential experiences, right, that allow them to say, yeah, there's something else possible other than status quo. And I've now got an experience that validates that. It's not thought. It's a feeling, it's a knowing because I felt it. And that kind of drives and encourages people to practice in their lives differently. And, and so, I, I, you know, my instinct is that, you know, all three of us on that spectrum that you laid out there, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're probably holding different gateways, but I bet, I, I bet the, the desired central garden is the same or the experiences yeah. we're giving people give them a sense of like, oh, oh, wow, that, there's a multiracial future possible. You know, I think that that's right. I love that. It's like we're just like, like we're different paths into the garden. I really, really like that imagery. It seems true for how we ascend or not or talk or language equity, but it also seems true about where our intervention point is. I would say, Alex and Natalie, like their, their intervention point really is always big systems. Yeah. Right? Like justice system, right? The prison system. Like it's huge. Yeah. Right. Like housing reform, right? Right. 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 Whereas Juanita and Tennyson are doing small groups around ritual and personal. The thing that struck me that I'm just like recalling most, and I want to bring it in, bring it after this, but Juanita and Tennyson were doing ritual, small groups, personal dialogue, right? Personal reflection. And we, know that we straddle both, yeah. right? Like that's what we heard in our uh, retrospective when we asked clients what they got from us. I mean, there was like this this pull towards changing big organizations or systems, but people also said they got personal trans- transformation. And so it's just like a little like, even that like portal in is different. Yeah. We're just like seeing it from different angles. Yeah, I love that. The thing that struck me, I wanted to bring it up to you because I was so interested and I think it's so controversial and yet I friggin' love it. That Juanita said when we were talking with her was she said when we were talking about equity work, it doesn't bother me, right, that sometimes I have to carry the weight. Now, she wasn't saying she always like in her relationship with Tennyson and how they talk about things. She wasn't saying, oh, it's great that sometimes I have to carry more weight as a black woman. She wasn't saying that at all. But what she was saying was, you know, when we talk about kind of fairness and equity work, like some people have to do more emotional labor, some have to do less. The quote she came back with, and I've heard her say it before, was, it is always the responsibility of those most healed to do more work. And that's such a flip on its head of 
a lot of the rhetoric these days, which is like those who are marginalized shouldn't have to do emotional labor. And she wasn't saying those that are marginalized should have to do more work, but she was kind of looking in the face and saying, but if I know more about race and racial healing than you, of course I have to do more work because I am further along the path. And so my job is to reach back and bring you along, right? And I'm not using her exact words, but I thought it was such a provocative statement to say those who are healed, of course, they have to do more work. Like that's their responsibility. It felt like a very mature way of approaching equity work rather than worried about and it's fair. I mean, it's totally fair. We don't want to put all the work on certain folks and certain groups of folks. And when we see those patterns, we have to interrupt them. It's, and I don't think she was saying anything different. I think she was just saying like, let's be real and honest about like, yeah, sometimes some people are doing more work and that's okay because they're, emo- they're more healed. They're more healed. And so they can do more work. What do you think about that? Mm. I can't tell from your expression at all. Well, I'm just thinking about it. I'm thinking... Because, I mean, it's just such a recurring message or theme, you know, the kind of emotional labor that BIPOC people have and are constantly called upon to have, mm-hmm. you know. And there's something about that that people who I talk to articulate, it's just unfair. Yeah. This feels like an unfair, unwelcome burden mm-hmm. that is thrust upon me by circumstance. Mm-hmm. We heard it this morning. Yeah, I did. Yeah, in yeah, in coaching groups this morning with, when we were doing the work in the cohort, and um, yeah, I was actually thinking about that conversation as you were talking. You know, yeah. On the other hand, I hear in what you know your quote of Granita, and at least how you're relating to what she said of like, well, look, it's just unavoidable. Like, if you were to say, you know, like, how do you, how do you reconcile that though? You know, because it's not like it's not like it's unavoidable. So like, you know. Suck it up, buttercup. Off we go to the races, right? Right, right, right. Come on now. Come on now. Look, you know, I mean, that doesn't seem like an empathetic, compassionate response. Right. Right. But it is unavoidable. I don't know. How do you, how do you, there's there's some kind of gray area there. There's some kind of line to walk and maybe, you know, it's most likely in that statement of those most healed. Right, right. And, you know, like, look, we're on treacherous ground. I can, I can feel it. Like, I feel a little nervous. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I think there's such an accepted dogma that emotional labor is a bad thing that, um, you know, there's some, you know, so I have two, I have two, like, I don't know how I navigated, but I know it called up something in me and my own dignity that me just talking about how unfair it is that I have to do more emotional labor doesn't call up in me in any way. Right. Do you, do you feel, do you feel like that? has the danger of perpetuating a kind of victim mentality. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, like, so this is why it's treacherous. This is why I'm nervous. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, well we're if, just talking. No one's yeah. listening. It's just you and me. <laughs> That's yeah. right. For sure. We never get feedback on this podcast yeah. where people <laughs> say to us what we said. Huh? Great. Huh? Um, no, but... Uh, <laughs> But I do, there's something that actually, I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk. Yeah. I'm not necessarily, I'm not making a, I'm not making an assertion here. No. But there's something that when Quinita says the most healed, right, that calls up my dignity and sovereignty and maturity in a way. Yeah, I will. That when I say, oh my God, it's so hard being a woman of color. I have to carry everything all the time. Feels a little victim-y even if it has truth in it, feels a little immature. Like, 
it's not, it feels like me saying like, it's not fair to my mom. It's not fair. Look, it's not fair. It's just not, it's not fair. There's nothing about it that is fair. But in my forties, I actually don't look for fairness as the barometer anymore. I look for what is mine to do. And what I like, and what, and I just like, I just listen to my- Wait, 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 wait. you said that really quickly. So what did I say? You don't, you don't look for fairness. You just look for what is mine to do. What is mine to do, yeah. right? Which is a very different stance than how am I being oppressed and victimized by the system. It's not that I ever forget that. I don't forget that, Tim. No. But it's like not, it is part of the truth, but it is not all of the truth. And so it's just like, I just think there's something, if I just go to my body for its wisdom, when Juanita says that I stand taller and I feel dignified when I, when I think about, I shouldn't have to do these things I feel smaller and I like go back in. And so if I listen to the wisdom of my body, like I want to be dignified. I want to do what's mine to do. And in every situation in my parenting, in my work life, in my partnership, like there are times when things just aren't friggin' fair. Every single day. Every day. It's not that I don't want it. It's not that I don't advocate for myself. So, so this is why it feels treacherous because I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying it's like, how do we work with what is? And the other thing, of course, that you know this about me, but when I hear a lot of like, it's so hard, I have to do so much work, but this is my lot in life as a person of color. I always get like, yeah, and it, but I also think it's so awesome to be a person of color. And like, and I know that Juanita feels that way too. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's like, if that, okay, so that's true. But it's also like, it's like telling all these white people, it's so hard and victim to be me, which is not the truth. I think I have things that are awesome because I'm a woman of color that like actually may not happen for white folks. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to me like they do. And so it's just a little bit around like, yeah, it's a couple of things. It's my own dignity and sovereignty. It's like actually owning the fullness of the experience of being people of color. And then it's also actually not railing against life on life's terms, but actually just trying to be with it. Actually be with what is actually real and go from there and not spend my energy on not wanting it to be how it is, which is like the ultimate suffering. At least that's what I'm finding in my life. I get the most suffering when I want things to be other than how they are. The original sin is to limit the is. Don't, right? Richard Bach. I think I told you, you used to have that like yeah. blue tacked onto my wardrobe as a kid. <laughs> I love it. Okay, Tim, what do you think? I might've lost all our listeners. What do you think? No, you haven't lost all of our listeners. You spend your life, you, you know you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like yeah. you know, pushing your way through dogma to see if we can't get to truth underneath, if we yeah. can't get to depth underneath it, you know, because the kind of dogma, the, the, the status quo of thinking, whether you're talking about equity or whether you're talking about leadership or whether you're talking about decision-making, like all of those things actually prevent us from discovering something new. So, so I think, I just think this kind of like pushing through the kind of the, the glass walls yeah. that surround these very precious thoughts or approaches is critical. That's how we stay fresh. That's how we stay sharp. You know, if we can't, if we can't question something, what are we doing? Yeah. 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 And I just think you're, you're brilliant at doing that. And, and I think you're also very graceful in the way you do it. So I'd, my expectation is we have not lost our listeners, but brought them further in. So I'm, I'm trying to find a way 
and this may be totally inappropriate, but like, Yay. I'm trying to just to jo- just to join the inappropriate party. Let's do it. I'm trying to find a way to relate this to my experience as a mm-hmm. white privilege family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like, where do I do emotional labor? Where's the unseen? Is there emotional labor in in my life in how I'm turning up? You know, I'm just curious to ask that. Like, you know, is is the emotional labor limited to those? who are BIPOC or is there actually emotional labor that's distributed that is different that may have a different weight may have a different feel on the back may have a different type of you know so I just I just want to open up to consider that a little bit I love it and I don't know that this has to do with you being a white man but I can tell you one of the stories that struck me the most when Brene Brown was doing her initial like when she first blew up right the work was on vulnerability, I think. I don't think it's authenticity is vulnerability. Yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember the video and everything. Yeah. We show the video sometimes in our in our programs, don't we? That vulnerability one. And she talks about going to one, like being at a speaking gig. And like this woman and her daughter came up and were so excited about her book and wanted her to sign it. And like, you know, she was like just like having this great moment with them about their own vulnerability. And then their dad and husband came up after them and said, yeah, you know, this is this is good work. It's great. But you need to know that my wife and daughter would rather see me die than fall off my horse. Like they don't want my vulnerability. That's not what they signed up for. They wanted this. They wanted protection. They wanted me to like be out front taking the hits. They want and it was like this really important story that she tells it and I've told it terribly, but she tells it because it's like yeah. But we're also keeping men from their vulnerability in very real ways. Not like, oh, don't be vulnerable, but like get out there and do that thing, right? In every, go out and make money, go out and be the provider, protector. And so that men also have what I would say could be emotional labor, or maybe it's not emotional labor. Maybe it's uh, unequal access to emotion, and that has its own kind of labor or its own set of ramifications. So I was really struck by that because I could feel at that point when I heard that story, I automatically turned and could look at my partner and see the places where I was unwilling to let him be vulnerable. And that, of course, has cost. So that's kind of like what I might see it in there as you think about it. I love that you opened it up. Can you see any place where you do emotional labor otherwise? Well, yeah, so there's a few things. Let's just try them on for size, eh? As we just chat about this first time you and I've talked about this through this lens. So let's just like mm-hmm. let's try a few things on for size and see how they fit. And we can we can leave them in the dressing room if they don't feel good, you know? That's right. All right. So let let's try on someone who comes from my particular background of like British boarding school. Mm-hmm. So the classic thing in British boarding school is like, and this will happen even if I meet British people down the pub here in Canada, you know, and they find out I've gone to British school. And one of the first questions will be like, you know, oh, yeah, was it all beatings and buggery? And then they burst out laughing, you know. And so there's an immediate, you know, and of course, as I've, you know, there's one response to that, which is I don't know when the rape of kids became funny, no, funny, no matter how privileged they are. And yes, that did happen. Right. Tends to be a bit of a conversation killer. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But is a response I'll give sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's emotional labor in that response. There's emotional labor in, and there's been an enormous amount of emotional labor to 
investigate my own history and my own past and my own family circumstances and the multi-generational experience of abuse that has happened in my family because of the culture of privilege, mm-hmm. right? Like, so there's an emotional labor there. There's an emotional labor in that. And there's an emotional labor to, as I imagine a person would color would have of actually having to constantly correct people's perceptions of privilege, mm-hmm. people's mm-hmm. perceptions of what life is like as a privileged person or a person who comes from privilege. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an area. Maybe that, I mean, I, I feel like there's emotional labor in that. There are some conversations, you know, so that's, may, let's try that one. on. And I think another one is maybe directly connected to that. And I think this is an emotional, there's, there's emotional, you know, it's that whole thing of like when people say to us, there's a, you know, what, what isn't, what's the program you do with, with Gibran? What, what can white people do? What should white people do? What should white people do? Mm-hmm. You know? And like my answer to that generally is like your own work. <laughs> right. Go look at your ancestry. Go look at your people. Go understand your history. Go understand the roots. Go understand like their involvement in what's taken place in this world, direct or indirect, mm-hmm. you know, like do the work. You know, and so I think I I think it's a I think for any white person or very particularly person of privilege like myself, you know, there's there's necessary emotional labor that you have to do to have the credibility to be in conversations around equity. Right. And that's not reading the right article. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not having done your 10 steps to be the top white ally. You know, that's like knowing yourself, knowing your ancestors, knowing your history, knowing your involvement, coming deeply to terms with that, mm-hmm. right? So that your first response isn't shame and crying and making it all about you, right. you know? Because <laughs> you've done your work. You've done your emotional labor. Mm-hmm. You've done enough emotional labor to be in the dialogue with others. So I think, though, you know, when you say like, does that, how, well, how do those two things sound to you? How do you hear those as a woman of color, as a white bloke waxes lyrical about his emotional labor somewhat. Well, there's something that I really, I really appreciate this conversation because I think that that's right. And I think we actually all have emotional labor to do. And so that's where it can feel when it becomes like uneven or too, too lopsided. But I'm also unclear how we decide what is too, too lopsided. Like, because we don't actually know what your work has been. I know what your work has been because we've been friends for 16 years, right? But just kind of looking at you, I don't actually know the amount of work you've done. And I kind of make the assumption that I've done more because of being in this brown body. I've done more of certain things for sure, but I haven't ever spent any time really working on my class privilege or trying to explain it to people. Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's, it's really interesting. I think what, what you just said brings back up to me around that, like, it's almost like keep your eyes on your own yoga mat, like do your own work. Don't talk about like, I, I'm doing this work. You do that work, whatever. But it's like, what is your work to do? And you've done it. And so then it becomes less about like, I'm judging the amount of emotional labor you've done against the amount of emotional labor I've done. And Tim, it's not that I never feel like it's unfair. Like, I, I feel like it's unfair all the time around issues of class. You know, like when we talk, I'm like, I wish I had that uh, possibility. There's like some small trying to even it out when I hope that what we're trying to do is actually the bigger evening it out. 
don't even know quite how to describe what I'm saying, but like you're identifying the emotional labor to understand what your work is and where you feel taxed. And that feels just right. Where it starts to feel not right is where I start to label other people's emotional labor against mine or... Or maybe it's right, but it just, for me, just doesn't have any energy. And then so like the the amount of like tentativeness you have to have when you talk about privilege in rooms, I think is emotional labor for sure. For sure. I've seen it, right? I've seen how that lands or doesn't land. And you have to try to figure out how to explain that to people for sure. And then the second thing you talked about, which I'm just like losing all of a sudden for some reason, what was the second one? Well, the first one was this, um, was, uh, the emotional labor of responding to stereotypes of people in privilege, right? This, this kind of like surface level assessment of who you are, right? you know, and I took the example of boarding school just cause it's easy and obvious to me. It's happened so many times, you know, that, 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 in that brief interaction I described. So there's, you know, so there's an, there's, so there's an, an emotional labor to correct that, obviously. Right. And, and, I, and I think there's a lot of people who come from privilege who haven't done the enough analysis to be able to correct that. They haven't actually done the emotional labor, right? And then it got into this kind of, well, I think there's, you know, I think one of the callings for anybody who wants to be in conversations around race and equity is to do their own work. Right, exactly, which is emotional labor. And I think it's- A Huge. It's, it's like what we ask of people, but then we judge whether they've done it enough or not. Right. I think that all, I mean, I think, you know, I've been philosophical, but like it all comes from judging ourselves. Like when I'm, when I'm holding what Juanita says around, I am more healed. So I'm fine to do more work. Mm. That's just such a different stance than thinking about, are you doing enough work? I don't think you're doing enough work. You're not doing enough work compared to the work I'm doing. Right. Do you know what I mean? It just feels really like we allow people to have their dignity. You do your work anyway. So I just think it's quite interesting and I like it. And I think it's quite provocative to think about the emotional labor of the privileged, which we've also seen in groups with leaders who get shit like thrown at them. And they're like, great. I'm here. I'm listening. Great. Not all, not many, but like some are there. Oh my gosh, yeah. No, there's leaders taking it, taking absolutely unfair criticism, mm-hmm. you know, rooted in people's experiences in other organizations or other places before they were leaders. And it just being this like barrage, you know, and, and, and you got to take it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that I, I'd like for me, that quote brings me right to an edge that I like. Mm. I like thinking about it. I like being pushed and opened in that way. I like how it makes me think about how does my body respond to this truth or not. I like, you know. Yeah. Well, choose. I feel like I love that we're challenging a kind of little piece of dogma in the realm of equity and just beginning to push around it. And, you know, and if, like all of these things, they're, they're like stances, aren't they? I mean, it's mm-hmm. inquiry is the answer. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, you know, if we were to take the shared work stance, I mean, and it's a practice of that, isn't it? It's a practice of, of being an inquiry of noticing where you've become too locked in Yeah. and therefore fragile, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, I really resonate with this, what you've been talking about and you used the word sovereignty earlier in the conversation, you know, mm-hmm. like how do I actually find my own sovereignty? How do I find my own dignity? How do I find my own stance so it's not it's not a this isn't comparative right you know and then and then from that place i can just make choices about when and how and what because it's not referential to somebody else right it's rooted in my own knowing my own self-knowledge right 
Yeah. I like it. Me too. Me too. I mean, it feels like more and more like, you know, we've said forever, right? Like you can only do what you can do and you can only control yourself like this is, but like, this is more of that. It's more stepping into it in a dignified way. Yeah. And then it's also like every time it's like, oh shit, people, there's work to do. Yeah. Right. You can't, you can't look at the world these days and say there's not work to do, you know? And so it's like, what's getting in the way of us doing work? Let's, let's make sure that whatever we're holding on to tightly isn't actually restricting our ability to get good work done. Right. Absolutely. We have time for it. You know, because the the need for courageous, curious leaders is uh, definitely upon us. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Friends, thanks for listening to us today as we followed the meandering path of our of conversation and analysis. We've thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you to Natalie Williams and Alex Schneider and Quentin Robertson and Tennyson Wolf for joining us on the podcast, for provoking some of these thoughts. Both interviews were completely delightful and completely different, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is great. Take care, friends. Have a good one. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait, what? Tuesday was talking about not knowing rap music earlier or in hip hop, but but I'm just going to unleash a secret into the world that Tuesday does know country music really well. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, no, yeah. no, she's, look. What, the, I know classic country music. You know. Like I know, I would know more classic rap, right? Like this is like 70s, 80s, 60s country music. Right Can now. you just give a short top three classic country songs of all time for those people out there who either might have an opinion about it or people out there who want to be educated in country music. I mean... Come on, top three. Let's do it. The top three might... That's really hard because, I mean, you could go really classic country, in which case you have to go Patsy Cline, Mm. which crazy, right? Oh, oh, crazy. Mm -hmm. That's a great song, isn't it? And then, like, you have this other kind of, like, after that, but like classic country, George Jones, he stopped loving her today. Oh, really good. And then you would not talk about country music if you didn't talk about Dolly Parton. Right. And so like, like my favorite Dolly Parton song is probably either Little Sparrow or the Seeker. One of those two. There you go, listeners. <laughs> don't say you don't get top tips on this pod. <laughs> All right, we deliver week in, week out. <laughs> Take care, my friends. Lovely being with you. Enjoy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.